we talking about practice. Not a game, not a game. We talking about practice. Practice, man. I mean, how silly is that? Welcome to Running It Back, the lesson learned podcast where we break down sports activity from back in the day, maybe recent days, who knows when, try to find some lessons, some insights, some things for us to work on. I'm joined as always by Tarlin Ray. Tarlin, how are you feeling today? Fantastic. Yeah. To talk about this one subject, it covers most of our childhood leading into our early adult lives this was the guy who if you're a jordan fan this is someone else on the opposite side you probably were rooting for he's just a different kind of superstar and excited to cover a little bit of his career yeah yeah and we're talking about alan iverson ai the answer bubba chuck the answer bubba chuck is a deeper cut not everyone knows bubba chuck he's had that since childhood too so yeah so alan iverson nba hall of famer who had a storied career, 165 pounds, six foot tall, pound for pound. I think you were saying, Don, pound for pound, the greatest scorer the NBA has ever seen. Also a very controversial figure, like a very sensitive human, someone who you can see wears his heart on his sleeve, but he also wears a lot of ink on his skin. And he's known for his corn rolls and his style of dress. He's known for his famous practice. You talk to me about practice. I'll keep working on my impression. Practice? I think it's pretty good practice, but that's what brings us here. You know, we want to run it back. We're running it back to moments in time, right? To then try to dissect what what that moment meant. Yeah, yeah. You can talk about Allen Iverson's full career. Right. We'll probably get into a little bit about Georgetown, his high school escapades, but Mm -hmm. I think what really got us talking years later was a moment in 2002 where Allen had one of the more raw press conferences after losing in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Yeah. It was the infamous practice line, which yeah. to today people will still repeat. Did they like the Jordan crying me practice or would you rather have the Jordan, Jordan crying me? The count, I believe, and try to get the raw footage, I believe he said practice 22 times. 22 times. 22 times. In a 30-minute pressure. With a 30-minute pressure. And it was actually in a relatively tight period. He was knocking out plenty of practices. And I think the, the gist of that press conference is that you're not talking to me about a game. You're talking to me about what I did practice. We're talking about practice, man. We're talking about practice. He's got a point, you know, and, and I think it's an interesting counterpoint for me. You can't really talk about Iverson without talking about Jordan. I feel like there's a lot of point counterpoint Jordan to Iverson. Jordan, we did recently talk about the last dance actually series. We ran it back on that. Jordan notorious for his work ethic and practice. And he's quoted saying, I don't ask any of y'all to do anything. I don't, I don't do myself. Maybe in a little less politic use of language. Jordan notorious in terms of his workout prowess. I get the sense. From Iverson's perspective, I mentioned he was 165 pounds. 
if he was going as hard as he went in a game in practice, he would have played less. He couldn't have played as long. Think about minutes management, trying to keep people on a minutes limit. Iverson averaged 43 minutes a game the year that, that they lost in the first round to the Celtics. It's an interesting trade-off, and I'd love to get your perspective on this. There is the argument that if you go at it harder in practice, you're less likely to get injured. So there is a little bit of that. If he was more of a gym rat, maybe he could have developed a little more muscle to get up to like 175 or 180 pounds. You did get the sense that he was trying to save his body. And then you also get the sense that he genuinely was questioning why he had to work so hard in practice when no one could question that he worked harder than anyone when it was in the game. So we can't talk about Al Iverson without talking about Larry Brown. Right. Uh, Larry Brown, old school coach, set of rules, just like any coach has set of rules. If Belichick were a basketball coach, I don't think AI and Belichick would have, they would have probably butted heads. Yes. If there was Patriot way. We know that leading up even to the 2001, 2002 season, Larry and Allen had issues because reportedly Allen would show up late to practice. I don't think it was necessarily missing. He was just not adhering to the strict rules that Larry Brown had set. Right. And most don't know that Allen Iverson, before he even had an opportunity to win the MVP, the shortest MVP in league history, before he even had that opportunity, he was going to get traded. Leading into the 2000-2001 season, there was a 16-24 player trade that was about to go down, if not for Matt Geiger. Matt Geiger, who had a, a trade clause where if he was traded, there would be a 15% kicker to his already exorbitant NBA contract. And he looked and said, I didn't think us going the place, I think they were going to Detroit, where we were going to go was good for Allen and I, so I, I nixed it. And everything, everything crumbled. Mm-hmm. And that then led to Allen having this redemption year where 2001, it wins the MVP and makes it to the finals. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we would have any of this conversation about practices if, if it were for the fact that Larry and Allen were just two different personalities. Yes. And Allen, if there are 10 things you need to do to be on my good side, Larry Brown, me have been doing seven. Yeah. And that just rubbed him the wrong way because Allen had the, the owner really in his court as well. So it created just a natural tension. It would just then bubbles out into the media and the world, which is what then people are grabbing onto to try to look for a way to chip away at Allen Iverson and yeah, and his star power. Yeah. And his controversial past, there was an element to the NBA fandom or the NBA intelligentsia who were questioning Iverson's work ethic in ways that were tied to the incident in his senior year at a bowling alley, he and three other black kids in his neighborhood wound up being prosecuted and wound up doing about four months, at least Allen did four months of jail time his senior year and was later freed because the fact that only the black kids were prosecuted wound up being grounds to, to throw the charges out and actually get him out. But that's another element of Iverson that I think was pretty formative to how he was perceived. He did play with the chip on his shoulder too. I I think that chip was from a number of different ways in which he had the cards stacked against him. He did not have an easy upbringing and he was frequently the smallest 
guy on the court. And I think that was part of why a lot of, a lot of us wound up rooting for him. He was the classic David versus Goliath guy. But I think there was, again, it's counterpoint to Jordan. Jordan would wear the oversized 90s suits and Iverson would dress more in line with like hip hop culture and did not want to conform to this corporatist ideal of how a good NBA player should be. He was just going to be AI. He was just going to be Bubba Chuck. He's so, going to dress instead of like he's going into a boardroom, he's going to dress like he would do any day of his life. Correct. What was interesting, you talk about the incident in the bowling alley. It was deemed a racial incident, but it was two groups of kids. It was a fight. Yeah. And it turned into a melee and caught on camera is Alan Iverson walking out. Yep. For all the stuff really happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things got worse. Mm-hmm. So imagine this is a kid in Virginia, Hampton, Virginia, that takes his high school as a junior to state, when state in basketball, when state in football, probably less than 165 pounds at that time. So imagine mm-hmm. he must have just been flying past people. Yeah. He is the biggest name around. And there's a fight at the bowling alley and the only people they charge. Mm-hmm. And even though they have video of him knocking out, he's the only one that's charged. Talk about a chip. That has to. Yeah. That colors your life. Like I am thinking I am the big star, but you know that some of the cops, sheriff, they were lying in their testimony mm-hmm. and it was just a way to bring him down. So imagine that that sits as a foundational and mm-hmm. the bedrock for how you're seeing the world and sort of how you're responding. Yeah. And then fortunately for him, John Thompson at Georgetown, everyone saw his talent. John Thompson saw the opportunity of giving him a shot, a scholarship at Georgetown and the ability to get his life back together again. This was his senior year in high school. You know, right now we're talking about a lot of seniors are are being shook by the the, the pandemic lockdown and, and whatever's going on in the world uh, today, he was trying to figure out where his life was going to go. And he was in prison based on the background that he grew out of. There's a chance he was not going to get out of the system. And then this transcendent talent, he, he was fortunate enough to, to get the tutelage of John Thompson and had a, a really impressive career at Georgetown. And then ultimately got drafted into the NBA and kind of went on from there. He's just a very sensitive human. When you see him interviewed, there's a sense of being hard, but he also seems vulnerable at the same time. It comes through in any of his interviews, comes through in any of the documentaries you can see about him. But I think it comes through very much in the practice press conference where he just seems tired and weathered by the constant chipping away, as you were saying. He just lost, and that was so clearly his team. He was a Hall of Famer. There was no one. There were, I don't think he ever even really played with an all-star. Eric Snow, um, McKee. Humbo yeah. may be able to block some defense, but that's time you're going against Shaq. Exactly. But the fact that he still was able to lead. Any thoughts on the contrast between Iverson and Jordan? So interesting. I still remember. It's amazing that someone who was in prison, the story that you tell about Al, Al Iverson is not the fact that he, he was convicted of a crime. Amazing redemption story doesn't happen often. Let's be clear. It doesn't happen often with a black male in society. Yeah, yeah. When he went to Georgetown, it was must-see TV. Oh, yeah. I still remember in college, it was 
one of the greatest shows around, win or lose, and you wanted to see Allen play. Mm-hmm. When Iverson hit the pros, knowing what Jordan did for Nike, I literally was all in on Reebok stock. Yeah. Because you talk about Jordan was selling McDonald's and apple pie and everyone loved him. But Alan Iverson spoke with an authenticity mm-hmm. to just a broader community. And he was real. And you got to see that for the moment he was at Georgetown. And you could see the impact that he's going to have in the NBA, especially because Jordan's success. Mm-hmm. Iverson was like the first, I believe one of the first pros in our generation where everyone could wake up and say, maybe I could do that. Mm-hmm. He's only six feet, 165. Right, right. The most recent version of that is Steph Curry, even though he's 6'3". Everyone, if you go in the gym, is chucking shots from half court. I coached a bunch of four, fifth, and sixth graders. And who I, I spent 20 minutes having to shoot three-pointers. They made five. I said, stop. None of you are Steph. So anyways, that's a different story about the influence. Yeah. But Allen Iverson was a cultural revolution. Allen Iverson spoke to people, and you could see it. So I often talk about posts on the wall. That truly was a poster on the wall. He's an outsized talent, but like someone looking and saying, that's, I know I could be them. I can look up to that person. Yeah. And this is a guy, as you talked about, who his imprints left in the NBA, not only from his crossover of Jordan, which was sort of the moment where it's like, is the passing the guard, his braids, he was dress coded. So this is out of the 2002 season. NBA enforces a dress code. And it's really starts because of what Allen is working yeah, right. for the pressers. Mm-hmm. They, they have a stricter palming rule mm. because Allen Iverson's hands are so big, they thought he was palming the ball with his crossovers. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, don't forget about the shooting sleeve. He right. had bursitis in his elbow. Right. On January 21st, which is my birthday, he put on the sleeve to try to help his bursitis. Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Carmel Anthony. Yeah, yeah. It became a culture. It became a, a thing you do, even though you don't have bursitis. So... Allen Iverson has such a massive impact yeah. on the way the NBA transition, including the tattoos, where you mm-hmm. saw people yep. rarely ever having tattoos in the game because you want, it was a quote-unquote clean sport. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's funny when you think about the evolution of Barkley, I don't want to be a role model. Jordan is a role model, but now that we're sort of peeling the onion, we're realizing... That that was commercial and not authentic in some ways, although in some ways he's a role model just because he was such a competitor. And then I think Iverson came along and kind of rejected the Jordan-style role model, gravitated a little more towards, I'm not a role model. But at the same time, I think he knew he was really leading many, many kids out there who saw themselves in him, kids who were not necessarily spoken to by a public professional athlete, by an NBA player. He was a nonconformist. He was going to be true to himself. There's even elements of Rodman to him. I just think there is an interesting aspect to thinking about him as the poster child. There is backlash against him. I guess some of it is warranted, but some of it also felt like a way to kind of keep him from being too defiant. You, you talked about being a role model. You said he didn't want to be a role model. I would just counter and say there is a packaging that someone wanted him to conform to. He's like, no, this is who I am. I'm going to be me. I love Philly. I'm going to yeah. die for Philly. Yeah, yeah. All in all out, I'm going against seven footers. Right. And 
when I'm away from the court, this is who I authentically am. He just was not willing to have someone manufacture who he is and in them not manufacturing this person AI. Him being AI in his true form is what had people flocking yeah. in idolizing him as an individual. So I think there's that tension. There's obviously race yeah. through all, all this. There's a tension with people in power, the way that Alan is acting, the people that he, that he hangs out with, maybe they don't like that. The music he may listen to, he's wearing chains, like just not the way to conduct yourself. That's yeah. fine. Right. But I'm just telling you, Chris Paul says he wears number three, not only because he's a third, but because of Alan Iverson. Yeah. He has clearly yeah. set, he set the stage for the future NBA stars that you see today. Mm -hmm. Race is a line that runs through a lot of what Alan has experienced from his time in Virginia mm -hmm. and even time in the NBA, even up to the dress code event. He is a fierce competitor. I think he hit the nail on the head. He shared his feelings. He's someone that was hurt and yeah. The chipping away and the constant needling where this is not an infallible person. Listen, yeah. you got a coach, right. everybody had with him. You're the leader of the team. You're not trying to practice. But I actually, in listening to the practice rant, you start to then peel away and say, why are we talking to this point? Why are we talking about yeah. practice? By the way, if anyone has listened this long and hasn't listened to that like you just got to check it out. It's part of the collective culture. I want to get more people doing their practice impressions. We talk about lessons learned, Tarlin. We run it back, not just to refresh our blurring memories, to kind of reacquaint ourselves to, to great stuff that happened in the past. We're also trying to figure out what can we learn. Any thoughts on what we can learn from just the press conference itself? There's some, probably some micro lessons around that. Also, like as just a, a piece of oratory. There's stuff to be learned from the actual words he was imparting there. Well, I was just thinking if I'm in Alan Iverson's shoes, the practice moment was like the ultimate moment where he said to himself, it's never going to be enough. So if you cycle back to talking about the fight in the bowling alley, where he truly is, he could probably walk into any store, barbershop, restaurant, everything's free. He is the king of that town taking two teams to state. Then obviously he goes to jail, goes to Georgetown. He's the king of Philly, butting heads, going to get traded. Then it's a wake up call, they say, for AI. Has one of the most amazing seasons, dragging a team that should not be in the finals to play against a Lakers team that was, everyone thought they would get yeah. swept. Probably the best season for the Lakers in terms of the quality of their team. The Shaq Kobe. As a Lakers fan, I still can't get the image out of my head of Teron Lugan stepped over. Yes. So that's the crossover and the step over. And the yeah. step over. Kind of about the step over. So then to have that MVP season at his size, MVP of the All-Star game, come back, the team is hurt, and still will his way to his highest scoring, highest uh, point output ever, 43 minutes, to get bounced in the first round with a team that just was not as good. And then for everyone to then once again be bringing up rumors that he's going to be traded. Yeah. And that is about his practice habits. Yeah, yeah. It just signaled to him that it's never going to be enough. And on top of that, as an athlete, challenge they have to make all this money, no one cares about your backstory. So he lost his closest friend yep. seven months before. He fought injuries. If he's not practicing, he's hurt. 
He's trying to be there for the team. He's got his daughter on the playground. He's hearing all these stories and he's got all these people chipping away. Yeah. I think the lesson for him is if I were him, I got to keep living and being who I am because none of these people are ever, regardless of how many accolades I get, it, will it be enough or will I be enough for them? Mm-hmm. So my lesson, and you'll see it now, it's so interesting. I think the brands that are winning today, especially with a growing population, we've talked in the past about millennials and Generation Z, those are brands that have a soul to them. There's yeah. authenticity. They're yeah. not manufacturing who they are. Mm-hmm. AI was that early. Yeah. He continues to do him. Mm-hmm. Alan, if you're butting heads, you're not, don't want to hear the rules. It's not about that. It really just gave me a different view into the person, the frustration and the exhaustion with trying to make other people happy. You just can't live your life that way. So that was the biggest takeaway yeah. for me in that what they're calling a rant, but I felt was the most, we'll always remember practice, but it was just an eye-opening presser. Yeah. When do you get that kind of access to the former MVP after right. a first round loss? Where right. people right. will give you curt answers and they're moving on. Exactly. The power of being true to yourself and the authenticity of that message is certainly one takeaway. Open invite to AI to appear on any upcoming episodes of Running It Back. I wonder whether he regrets that presser. You gotta be curious. What I love about him is I think he would still say, I believe every word that I said there. And I believed everything that I said there when I said it. Nothing has changed. It didn't seem like there was a a next version of AI that happened later on in his career where suddenly he was the traditional quote-unquote clubhouse champion who was leading everybody in practice. And, you know, he became more of a mentor, sure, as he got older in his career, but he still, he always presented authentically and pursued the, the AI way of being. How would you manage or coach an Allen Iverson? How do you handle the motivation challenges when there's such disparity in talent where you have this one player who's truly transcendent and then the rest of his team is not really at the same level. Larry Brown had his hands full. And I'd be curious, what do you think about the job that he did? Any lessons learned? Any things to do, things not to do as a leader, as a manager? And then translating of that to your own experience. If you had an AI on your team, how would you approach getting through to him and leading it? So Alan Iverson still says the best coach he ever played for was Larry Brown, mm-hmm. despite all the friction. You can see Tom Brady on the sidelines with Josh McDaniels yep. yelling at each other in, in plain sight, but he's got the championships and people just say he's competitive fire. Right. So Alan, I think maturity, you know, it was just an, it was a young guy, yeah. butting heads. I think there does come a point, especially when you're talking about NBA coaches, it's just hard to every day continue to figure out how to reach someone. It'll be interesting to have Alan Iverson play for someone like Steve Kerr. I think Steve Kerr has a, a looser style, but I don't think it means he's less regimented, but just has a looser style, connects with players in a different way. Yeah. I don't think AI is as demonstrative, but Steve Kerr would say the person he struggles to connect with the most would be a Draymond Green right. in the way that they try to interact. So you just never know if Larry Brown ever tried to put AI on an equal footing remove the rules and let's just talk about what we're all trying to accomplish together. Right. Instead of conform to me, how do I conform to you as individual? I think traditional managers, I grew up where I'm the manager and it's not about being friends, but you always created this, this division between yourself and the team, 
try to be friendly enough. You set strong goals. I figured over time as a manager, I just become a better person. I've learned more because you show that you're fallible. You show that the idea and the strategy that you have may not work and you're looking for more inputs and that then creates more agency for the people that you're working with. And then they want to see you. It's almost like they're pushing up you to succeed at the yeah. same time they feel like you're supporting them. Mm -hmm. I feel like the my way or the highway used to work. If Larry was a taskmaster, uh, media is reporting one way about the way Iverson is, there's just consistent reports about Larry. Right, right. These days probably would not work as well with the current NBA players. Yeah, yeah. So I think that would be a lesson for Larry. Not being in the room, I'm sure they've had tons of conversations. Right. The, the challenge I would have is when you do set some structure and if you have your main person consistently not adhering to it, it just creates an environment where you then have a hard time connecting with other players and team right. members. We have it in traditional business. Someone will say, why is that person still working here? They're just right. not good. Right. They're not right. contributing. They're yeah. bringing us down. And so it, it chips away at your credibility. Right. So it's not an ego thing. You're just trying to maintain a lever of credibility with the rest of the people in the organization. Right, right. My boy is having a meltdown. This is his version of as a young boy. So you practice. Uh, we're trying to put some structure. If he would only practice better. Any thoughts on just practice in general? Any lessons around the importance of preparation? You strike me as someone who, who prepares. I was a practice guy. I, I learned as a point guard, I learned people's tendencies in practice as the captain. It was the way I busted people to get them to work hard. I felt that through practice, listen, he is all world. You never heard about him having bad practice habits at Georgetown and right, things like right, that. It never right. came out. I like to say you, you kept it within the team. We will handle it within the yep. organization. Right. I feel like if you want to create that sixth sense with your teammates, that all comes from practice, not in the game. It, it's important. And counterpoint maybe is practice is also going out to dinner together. There are other techniques to create that connectivity. But it is interesting. He was the captain of the team and he was on the record saying practice is not as important as the game, which I think we all would agree in the abstract. No one cares what you do in practice. They only measure you based on what you do in the game. But when the best player on your team, the captain, is not at the front of the line the way you're talking about, not really busting his ass harder than anybody else on the team, it may not motivate the other players, especially in the case of Iverson, where I was trying to do the math on the percentage of shots that he took. It's astronomical, the percentage of the offense that he is, both good and bad, all the made shots, all the missed shots. When you go back to this time period to see that that team then made it to the NBA finals and won the first game by sheer force of will of this 165 pound powerhouse is truly remarkable, both in terms of the basketball outcome, but also in terms of the lessons had he won, then he would basically be saying one amazing individual can lift everyone else to this level. And it's, it's even more of a disparity than you had with Jordan and the Bulls. Jordan had Pippen. Jordan had other supporting players. And then for that guy to say, well, the only way I'll be able to do this is to forego practice as a priority and instead focus on the game. They're talking about practice because there were comments that he may show up late. He actually said in that press, I wasn't available for one practice. All right, right. No one says that he loafs in practice. Right. If you look at that team, it's all about chemistry and gelling. There's no way that team would work as hard as they did together if AI every day was loafing in practice. It's not possible. You have right. terrible chemistry. 
they would not go as far with Eric Snows and Aaron McKee. And he would not have a C on his jersey. Right. He was low fit. So what he was saying was, he never said he's not willing to practice. Yeah. Though at the end of the day, what you come to see, what I'm measured on, is whether or not we win and how I perform in the games. And we lost. And it sucks. And I hate losing. But why are we talking about a practice? I agree. From that standpoint, AI, without ever being there, there's no way he was a consistent loafer in practice because his team would have rejected him. Agreed. I, I guess the point, though, is maybe it's Eric Snow, maybe it's Aaron McKee, who knows? There were other voices, other personalities who were likely running that practice dynamic. Because I have been on teams where the best player is not putting in as much effort as the rest of us, especially the best scorer. If you're a scorer, you can just be a scorer and the rest of the team will appreciate you and you can coast. I'm not saying Iverson did that. He led the league in steals. You could just watch him bust his ass all over the court, the way he would throw his body around, sacrifice his, his small frame. There's no question about his warrior ethic and that he's, he's a competitor. But I think the dynamics of that team, there was probably some quiet leadership behind the scenes to recover a little bit in practice and we'll kind of carry that load for him. Also open invite to members of the 2000, 2001, 2001, 2002 Philadelphia. Maybe Matt Geiger. Matt Geiger, yeah, Eric Stein. I saw Tony Kukoc made an appearance too. So uh, we can't really get through running it back without talking about Tony. Any final thoughts? Finally? My final thought as you're talking about his shot distribution. Really would love to know the origins of his nickname, Bubba Chuck, because AI was a chucker. You don't get bursitis in your elbow. I you lay any on your elbow, but he was a chucker. Okay, you have it. Insights abound on running it back. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe, follow us on Twitter and wherever we are in the world. Tell your friends, let us know what you want us to talk about. We'll be back again soon on Running It Back. We're talking about practice, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice, practice, man. I mean, how silly is that?